I'd invite you to remain standing for a reading from Scripture. We've been journeying through the life of Moses, and we pick up with Moses again today in Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you have brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen the people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I will make into you a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and with mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham and Isaac to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land. I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Driving to church this morning, I called my mother to wish her a happy Mother's Day. And she said, thanks so much for calling, and don't you dare mention me in your sermon. But as my brothers are quick to point out, I am something of a mama's boy, so I will say something about my mom. When it comes to my mother, one of the unique gifts God has given her is her compassion. Uh, specifically the compassion she shows for people who often go unrecognized. Uh, for example, I remember growing up at Christmas time and walking down to the end of the street with a plate of lemon meringue bars to give to our garbage men, whom my mom had on the Christmas list every year. That was my mom, always stopping to chat with the hotel maid or carrying on a conversation with a waitress. And I look back at my life and at the lives of my brothers, and I can't deny that we've inherited some of her compassionate DNA. And I wonder if the same couldn't be said about Moses and his mother. You'll recall that Moses really had two moms, a birth mother and an adoptive mother. Uh, Back in the days, uh, the Pharaoh had all newborn boys uh, killed, wanted all the newborn boys killed, so Moses' birth mother uh, wrapped him in a reed basket and floated him down the Nile River. Ironically, Pharaoh's daughter, who was bathing at the river, uh, spotted this reed basket and said, Oh my gosh, this is one of the Hebrew children. And scripture says this about her, Exodus 2.6. She had compassion on him. So much so that she saw to it that the young baby be raised, and before long she claimed the baby as her adoptive son, naming him Moses a name that literally means in Hebrew, to draw out. An appropriate name. After all, Moses' mother, literally out of her compassion, drew him out of the water. We turn to our scripture 
today. And I really do wonder if Moses didn't inherit a little bit of her compassion. Because here's what's going on. God is angry with the Israelites. Moses has been up on sabbatical on top of Mount Sinai. And his people have turned their back on God and begun to build uh, the golden calf. Uh, For centuries, theologians have debated the symbolism of the golden calf. And I don't want to go too in-depth about it this morning, uh, other than to say it's clearly a symbol of greed, sin, and betrayal. Uh, Scholar Ray Vanderland reminds his students that the Israelites were often asked to contribute their own jewelry uh, to be part of this golden calf some of which symbolized their marriage relationship or their covenant with God. So contributing your jewelry to be part of the golden calf would be the equivalent today of pawning your wedding ring. And not just the ring your spouse gave you, but the ring God gave you. Yikes. It clearly is a slap in the face to God, and God is very upset. God says, Moses, my anger will burn against them and I will destroy them. And it's in this moment, with the history of Israel lying in the balance, that this adopted child whose mother drew him out of the river with her compassion reveals some compassion of his own. He considers the plight of his people and says, No, God, be mercy on them. Be merciful on them. Relent and do not bring your judgment. After hearing Moses' reply, interestingly enough, God relents and spares the people his destruction. Remarkable. Just as Moses' mom drew Moses out of the water with her compassion, so too does Moses use his own compassion to draw out God's. So what I want to do for you today is just revisit this conversation between God and Moses and draw out for you a few of the compassionate features of God's personality. And the first is clearly this. God listens. Now, from the onset, this isn't true. God is clearly stubborn. God says to Moses, Moses, I don't want to hear it. Leave me alone. Those are really three difficult words, are they not? If you've ever loved someone and know a friend or a spouse that's been going through a lot of pain or grief, and they slam the door on you and say, leave me alone. It's a horrible feeling because the last thing you want to do in that moment is leave the person alone. Just ask Moses, who clearly has no intentions of obeying God's request. We get a glimpse of Moses' relentless heart for God. He's not going to leave God alone. We can picture Moses standing outside of God's door, knocking just about every two minutes. God, can we talk? Can I come in? And after a while, God concedes and listens to Moses' request. Just the other day, I bought something online with my credit card. And there was a snafu in the transaction, so I had to call up the dreaded 1-800 number. Uh, For about 10 minutes, I entered in uh, everything in my life, it seemed like, on the keypad, uh, and then was uh, put in touch with a team member who had me on hold for 10 minutes and then transferred me uh, to someone else 
who also put me on hold for four minutes. Finally, somebody got on the phone and I said, put me in, 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 put me on with someone in charge. Uh, my anger was clearly uh, bubbling up and, and, the, and the, the woman said, well, uh, she's not available right now, but if you leave her an email, she'll get back with you within seven working days. Uh, so I gave the phone to my wife and let her take over. And, you know, sometimes I make believe that God operates the same way. That because he's in charge, clearly he wouldn't want to listen to what I have to say. But as scholar uh, and uh, Christian writer Philip Yancey has pointed out, if you believe that God is a distant politician who sits behind his desk in Washington, D.C., hearing second-hand information about you from his customer service representatives who put you on hold for the next available person, then might I suggest that you've got God wrong. God is so compassionate that God stands ready to listen to our requests. But I read the scripture here and I think about God's compassionate personality. And it's not just that God listens, but God also responds. Scripture is not shy about it. It says God changes his heart. God's compassionate heart shifts and he decides that he will not bring destruction on his people. And this is not the first time you see this happening in the Bible. You remember the great Judean king, King Hezekiah, uh, who fell terminally ill and prayed to God and uh, with all sorts of weeping. Uh, and God decides that he will listen to his requests and grant him 15 more years of life. It happens throughout the scripture, whether it's uh, Abraham's family or Joseph uh, being rescued uh, or uh, the coming of the Messiah or the rebuilding of the temple. The events typically happen after God's people cry out for God in prayer. And then God responds to their requests. And on a day like Pentecost, I'm reminded that you and I have received the Holy Spirit. And by praying in that spirit, we have the opportunity to work with God in shaping history. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, a theologian, Dallas Willard, explained. He said, I grew up in a belief system that presented God as an unblinking cosmic stare who never changed his mind whether he wanted to or not and had to know everything whether he wanted to or not. But as I grow older, said Willard, I have come to realize that God does respond to my prayers. This is what makes God so compassionate. God is not an antique. God is not a relic. God is not a figurine in a wax museum. God is not the golden calf. Rather, God is living and breathing and ready to hear from us. His way of ruling the world involves human input. God listens. God responds. And then third and finally, by virtue of listening and responding, God risks being intimate with God's people. Which brings me to a final thought about God's compassion, and it is this. God makes himself vulnerable. It's not typically a word that we use to describe God, vulnerable. So let me explain Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament theologian, 
notes that this conversation between God and Moses represents a shift in God's personality. Up until this point in Exodus 32, we see God in Genesis and the earlier half of Exodus uh, presenting himself in a burning bush or atop a mountain or inside a palace precinct or in a cloud or amidst some thunder. But what you get here in Exodus 32 is clearly something different. It's a very raw version of God. This is not God handing down a a speech on YouTube or some sort of quick divine text message. This is God clearly wanting to sit down on Moses' couch and have a conversation. For God isn't the only one that has something important to say here. It's a shift. God, for the first time, exposes his heart on behalf of God's people. In fact, you'll note that after Exodus 32, no longer are the Israelites asked to come up to God. No more trips up the mountain for Moses. Rather, God comes down to them. Or as Walter Brueggemann points out, the scripture starts a gradual descent from atop Mount Sinai to the manger in which God ultimately makes himself vulnerable. I was reading this past week a book about Christian marriage, and the author talked about the difficulties that can arise in any marriage, one of which he said was this. He said, when two people love each other so much and make themselves vulnerable to one another, one of the risks that you take is that when disappointment comes, and inevitably it will because of sin, Ultimately, that disappointment is bound to sting even worse. It's risky to make yourself vulnerable in any relationship. And that is clearly what God's willing to risk on our behalf. What does this mean? It means that in our relationship with God, we're bound to betray Him with our words, We're bound to betray him with our actions. We may even build our own golden calf and worship it. But God is compassionate enough to remain vulnerable so that we will turn and be closer to him. Willing to put his feelings on the line. Willing to put his heart on the line. Willing to put his life on the line. For our sake.